внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. A coordinated and comprehensive attack targeting virtually all segments of Russian civil society, including journalists, lawyers, activists, and opposition politicians. An equally coordinated and comprehensive campaign to encourage prominent opposition figures to go into exile. A deeply unpopular ruling party with sinking poll numbers with elections just a week away. And an uprising next door that has spooked the Kremlin elite. Владимир Путин's autocratic regime is cracking down on dissent again. But this time, it feels a bit different and a lot more sinister. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood just down the street from me is my old friend and colleague, Maria Senegavaya postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, and a visiting scholar in the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University. Welcome back to the podcast, Maria. Thank you, Brian. Good to have you. And joining us also from Vilnius, Lithuania, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarnost, for Russia without lawlessness and corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister back in 2002. Welcome back to The Vertical, Vladimir. Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so to get things rolling, Maria, I actually wanted to start with you because you last week authored what I considered a really excellent op-ed in The Washington Post. Um, with the eye-grabbing headline, Russia's latest crackdown on dissent is much more sweeping than ever before. Um, that's a high bar to clear, much more sweeping. So uh, that, that, that's a, that was an eye-grabbing headline for me. And you open the piece by writing the following. Russians and longtime Russia watchers have grown accustomed to political repression campaigns by the government of Vladimir Putin, has regularly launched over the last 20, uh, 20 years. But the situation in 2021 in the lead up to parliament, parliamentary elections on September 19th appears quite different. Maria, how is it different this time and why is it different this time? Thank you very much, uh, Brian, for kind words uh, about my article. Yes, I thought it would be very important to, um, you know, enlighten uh, the, our American audience, especially about the situation that's unraveling in Russia today in a more systematic way, rather than covering a particular angle of repressions uh, to provide a broader picture. I'm glad uh, that uh, some people paid attention. Uh, so where things are different, and I believe it's, it's important to attract attention to what's going on, because it is, I think, quite unprecedented uh, to what we've seen before, and we'll talk, I imagine, about reasons why we see this um, subsequent part of this podcast. But what is different? First of all, uh, as precisely you summed up uh, at the beginning of the podcast, uh, is the degree and the scale of the crackdown. Uh, in the past, uh, the, election, the repressions would appear to be more 
selective. I myself and other uh, scholars in the past have described uh, the situation as uh, selective repressions by the regime that could be described as, uh, say, uh, soft authoritarianism, or some people described it as hybrid. It's not my favorite uh, description. But either way, uh, the repressions are not systematic and must scale. But instead, uh, they target isolated groups, individuals, organizations. And the uh, idea is to induce, to motivate self-censorship among the rest of the population, the rest of this group. So you target one particular guy, everybody gets the message, everybody starts behaving. And I have to say it worked uh, quite uh, well for the Kremlin. One of the reasons why it did is the new information environment in which uh, we operate today. Uh, uh, Sergey Griev and Dan Traceman, for example, have co-authored a brilliant article about the information autocrats, right? In this environment, the information spreads really fast. We're all aware about what's going on in the distant village somewhere in Siberia. Uh, well, in the past, they wouldn't know that uh, without internet. And so uh, it's very easy to motivate self-censorship um, using disinformation um, uh, space by sending signals. And of course, in combination with Russia's history, the learned impotence, you know, the fear of repressions uh, that we all inherit as um, uh, Russian citizens from uh, the Soviet times, all of that worked very well uh, for the regime. And yet, uh, we observe over the last, uh, in the last year, a really intensified uh, crackdown, which now targets, as you said, Brian, pretty much all uh, all groups uh, within the civil society. So it's not just journalists or political politicians who uh, used to be a more uh, typical target for the Putin regime. But now we see the lawyers, uh, like, for example, the Team 29 uh, people, a brilliant organization that did a lot for the civil society in Russia. Um, activists, even, um, even universities uh, now come under the attack, which really seems to be much more systematic. Uh, the biggest question for me, to what extent you can describe this current wave of repression as mass scale? Uh, uh, the, there's, a, there's a lot of debate actually ongoing in Russia on uh, this topic because there's reasons not to describe as mass scale, right? Uh, like, for example, a lot of people can still openly speak up. Uh, there's a lot of people who are still relatively uh, untouched uh, by the repressions. Uh, but at the same time, we see there's already a system, there's all this list of usual suspects who are being targeted. Uh, that definitely suggests that there is uh, quite a, an increase in repressions, as I said before. And, of course, Russian civil society is not very large, unfortunately, still. So this list of usual suspects, the targets of repressions, unfortunately, is not very uh, long. Uh, Lydia Ginsburg, one of the brilliant Russian uh, writers, when she, in her memoirs about uh, the Soviet time and Soviet time repressions, she has coined this famous sentence. It was a lottery. Uh, at first, and then it be has become a line. It became a line. Mm -hmm. I, well, sort of the question is, are we still in the lottery stage, or we switching to the line stage, or somewhere in between? I want to yeah. I want to get Vladimir into the discussion, but I want to stick with you just for a moment, Maria, and kind of drill down into a couple of these things. I mean, the the tools the Kremlin are using are kind of tried and true, true tools, the foreign agent law, the undesirables law. We don't see any new tools, or at least I don't at the moment see any new new tools being intro, introduced. If, I, if I'm wrong about that, please correct me. But the other thing I wanted to ask you, Maria, is why you said in the last year, 
why the change in the last year? Is this related to the return of Navalny and his arrest, or what? What are, what are we? What are? Why are we seeing this now? Uh, first of all, on your tools point, I don't exactly agree. I think it depends on how you define the tools. I mean, there's a limit of what you can do to a given person. Like you can arrest, you can I don't know, uh, fine, you can kill, God forbid, right? And we've seen Putin's regime has been already that in power 20 years really has used uh, all of those tools but the combination varies and i have to say there's several innovations we can talk about that more for example the foreign agent law which has been in practice before now seems to be uh, re-oriented to target to target any organizations that fundraise and fundraising is the biggest uh, tool of uh, you know getting funding for uh, the civil society in russia which is effectively cut off any western funding and of course the kremlin itself also does not uh, fund this organization so crowdfunding has been very very popular now pretty much every organization that any organization crowdfunds not under control by the kremlin can get easily on the foreign agent list just because some unknown person somewhere i don't know some in Nigeria, random foreigner may have like yeah, given them yeah. a ruble or two okay and for now now, it's a, I would say it's a new development, and it's not necessarily maybe very uh, dangerous as of now. You can still function as a foreign agent, but effectively it cuts you off many alternative revenue sources, such as advertisements, because uh, of companies, the businesses are very aware about advertising with foreign agents. So that's one thing. Another thing is how the registration of candidates occurs. Uh, they are now cut off registration at the early stages. They pretty much most of independent politicians who have announced that they're going to run for the election. Uh, they were uh, attacked immediately by uh, the Siloviki, right, the security services. There were some made-up trials immediately announced against them. And courts essentially forbidden them to even in, uh, announce the, the, the participation in the uh, in the running for the election, even uh, collecting signatures, essentially was de facto not an option for many of these candidates. In the past, they were um, they were blocked at the stage of the registration. And the difference is that uh, the Kremlin tries to avoid the protest. At the past, when a lot of independent candidates were not registered when they collected all the signatures, it created protests like in Moscow in 2019. The Kremlin doesn't want it to take it, so it pushes essentially this. Or like a deadline for when to attack the candidates on early stages of their electoral uh -huh. game. And effectively, courts and uh, security services are now deciding that instead of electoral commissions, who's going to run, who's not. Uh, and of course, on your point about why this is all happening, um, I'm sure that Vladimir will have a lot to contribute on this debate. But uh, I, I'm making actually three main uh, points in my article. First of all, elections, of course, are important. We know that the electoral ratings of the authorities have been declining. Uh, that's a given. However, in the past, the Kremlin has successfully uh, falsified a lot of this election, and with the new tool and changes in the electoral legislation, or uh, the goal is the, the monitoring uh, agency has estimated the electoral legislation has been changed at least 19 times uh, this time around. The Kremlin has the capacity to falsify uh, the results effectively. Uh, I think the bigger role that sort of uh, provoked the Kremlin was certainly uh, triggered by Belarus, the Belarusian mm. protest. We noticed the timing of Navalny's poisoning and subsequent wave of restrictions that follow starting late August, early uh, fall. I wonder what Vladimir thinks about it. Maybe he disagrees. Uh, again, that's not unlike what Kremlin has done in the past. In the past, any wave of color revolutions or mass scale protests across the post-Soviet, post-communist space did tend to trigger 
Kremlin's domestic repressions, because the mm -hmm. Kremlin is horrified if anything like that happening domestically. And last but not the least, I do actually tend to believe that the constitutional changes that were passed uh, you know, last summer that essentially allowed Putin to stay in power up until 2036, de jure, de facto, indefinitely, those uh, sort of pushed the regime into different type of regimes, regimes that no longer pretend to become because of some sort of institutionalized hybrid, whatnot, but very hardcore uh, mm -hmm. dictatorships uh, that no longer sort of uh, hide their game, but very in the open about how they're going to operate in the future. So we see a pretty qualitative change here. Just a little snarky aside here, Marie, when you were talking about the uh, the foreign agent law being very broadly uh, defined in terms of anybody that fundraises or seeks advertising, I had a funny thought on that. Um, Russian state television airs advertisements from foreign firms. Therefore, I think we should probably file a petition uh, that Pervi Kanal is a foreign agent should be declared as such. Just just a little just a little aside. Anybody out there that's listening that has standing to file such a complaint, Vladimir, do you concur with Maria's assessment? Are we seeing something right now that is qualitatively different than what we've seen in the past? Uh, I would outline one thing which is absolutely different from uh, anything that we've seen since, well, not even the Soviet Union times, but probably since the 1950s, because Brezhnev and Andropov regimes, I think we talked about this in one of your previous mm. podcasts, they tried to maintain, particularly after 1975 and Helsinki Accords, they tried to maintain an interface that they are following the rules. Uh, not anymore. Not anymore. I think one specific feature of this year, 2021, is the extremely massive uh, widespread use of extrajudicial mechanisms to target Putin's opponents. This is something that never happened before, never in the history of Putin's dictatorship. From uh, the trial on Navalny in this uh, extraterritorial court in Kimki police station, which is explicitly forbidden by the law and constitution that you hold extraterritorial ju judiciary hearings. You only do that in court buildings. That's explicitly said in the law. Nevertheless, they tried him at the police uh, station. Uh, to uh, all these mass uh, bans of like Iranian style bans of uh, various candidates from systemic parties, non-systemic parties, uh, dozens of prominent candidates are banned from elections. Most of them are being banned on extrajudicial grounds because uh, a lot of them are being connected to Navalny's network, which has been declared extremist. However, legislation explicitly requires that for some specific person to build extremist networks, court decision every specific person. You cannot broadly interpret that. So the Electoral Commission takes this framework court decision on the extremism of our uh, uh, colleagues and extrapolates it onto every candidate which it doesn't like. It cannot happen like that. You got to have a court decision on every specific individual. This is just these rules are not followed. So I think this is a very important and explicit signal that we're simply ignoring the rules anymore. We're just following what we think is right to keep you guys out of out of politics. This is exactly, I mean, this is following uh, Putin's answer during one of his press conferences, or was it direct line with Russians when he was asked about Navalny in the past couple of years? I think before, I think it was before the poisoning, where he compared Navalny to Mikhail Saakashvili in Georgia, and said that we will never allow uh, guys like Navalny to rattle our political system, uh, meaning that he is prepared to do that at any cost, 
at any cost, mm. simply ignoring any legal mechanism. So this is something that is uh, that is totally new. Before they tried to follow some sort of uh, rules or some image that they are following the rules. Not anymore. Uh, however, the, there's a flip side to that coin because the positive thing about that is we all understand why this is happening and. In the beginning, you mentioned uh, collapsing approval ratings of the ruling party. This is, I think, that's that's the classical. If 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 people watch soccer, that's the classical stuff when uh, your adversary is heading with a ball towards your goal, and the goalkeeper is out there somewhere in the field. So there's nothing else you can do but just grab him. Okay, there's going to be a penalty, 11 meter kick, but so mm -hmm. be it. You're just saving your goal from from uh, uh, your opponent scoring right. uh, scoring a shot, right? So that's that's the what they're doing. Uh, to us, it also looks encouraging because that's a sort of a, uh, a less less resort effort uh, to keep opposition from scoring major major advances in this upcoming election. Also, I have to say, when people discuss the Duma elections that are uh, due to take place in the week, it's important to understand that they are a gateway to 2024. Mm -hmm. Marie has been mentioning Putin's desire to postpone his presidential term indefinitely. Uh, that's the last, it's not only the last big federal event before 2024 when this is going to happen. This is actually the exact Duma, the exact parliament which will make decisions. Uh, on how to extend Putin's term. And if you uh, observed carefully the past few years, Putin always wants uh, absolute unanimity and uniformity in strategic decisions. Uh, annexation of Crimea, constitutional amendments, whatever. He always wanted the big four parliamentary parties to vote unanimously for any strategic decisions. Uh, he, he doesn't want obviously any signs of dissent when it comes down to extending his rule, which means that uh, we, we're not even uh, talking about United Russia losing the majority. Now, I'll be happy if that happens uh, next week, but Putin doesn't want even the slightest opportunity for some small dissent, like when this Duma is about to extend his term, uh, some people would stand up and say, no, it's unconstitutional, it's illegal, we're against it. He doesn't want that. He wants 100% of Duma members to support it. Uh, and uh, uh, another important point, uh, he, he doesn't want to suffer an important blow two and a half years before 2024 extension of his term. He doesn't want this lame duck moment uh, so that for the rest of this two and a half years, everybody would be discussing, well, but he wasn't even able to get 50% of the proportional vote for his ruling party. Is he really the guy uh, to take on for another six mm -hmm. or how many more years, right? He wasn't even able to keep several dozen uh, opposition candidates from taking the Duma seats. First time in 18 years. Mm -hmm. is, he really, is he really that strong? I'm sure that that's one important reason behind all these actions and brutal repression, because he wants to have the field completely cleaned up. He's not going to take any risks. Um, I want to just for our listeners, Vladimir, if you can explain what this doom is going to, to, to going to, to decide about the extension of Putin's term. We all basically in 2020, the, the Constitution was changed, zeroing out Putin's term limits. 
um, which essentially allows him to run for two more consecutive terms. What is the Duma going to be, be deciding about this, just so our listeners can understand this clearly? Point number one is the state Duma which appoints presidential election. So the decision to hold presidential election and uh-huh. my points, Duma, uh, Duma adopts the law to hold presidential election on a specific date, on a specific condition. It's it's a state Duma which does it. Uh-huh. Uh, no one else does it. It's a state Duma which does it. And also uh, all the frameworks, the constitution was like a more like a green light, a no objection sort of thing. Constitutional amendments last year, they had removed the barrier for Putin to run for another term. The whole set of framework, how is it going to be held? I mean, uh, what are the conditions? What are the rules? Essentially, it's in the hands of the upcoming Duma. So that's one important point. Another important point that, again, as I mentioned, this is the last big federal event before 2024. Mm -hmm. So it will determine the mood, how people perceive Mm -hmm. Putin's strength. If Putin is not capable of winning 100% of whatever he wants right now, and is he really the leader that that uh, has no alternative for many years ahead after 2024? That's the question. Okay, no. So I'm taking I'm taking three big takeaways from you here. Um, we all understand that the law in Russia has always been window dressing, but now they're not even pretending. They're not even dressing the windows anymore, if you will. Uh, number two is they're panicking. Um, and that that's that's been clear for a while. And the third is that there is this need, even though the Duma is effectively an extension of the executive, Putin wants to assure he has unanimity in this Duma coming to, to, to make such a momentous decision. Uh, Vladimir, I want to stick with you because I wanted to talk a bit about the latest round of emigration. Um, by leading opposition figures and civil society figures. Of course, you decided to leave Russia back in April, and we talked about this on on this podcast at that time. Opposition figure Dmitry Gudkov left in June. The prominent journalist Roman Badanin left in July. Two close associates of Alexei Navalny, Lubov Sobol and uh, Kerry Yarmish, left in August. Our mutual friends, the journalists and authors Andrei Saldatov and Irina Borogan, have also left the country and are living in London. The list goes on and on and on. I just hit a few of the the high points here. Um, A a recent article in the New York Times put it uh, as follows in the headline, Exile or Jail, the Grim Choice Facing Russian Opposition Leaders. The article quotes Gutkov as saying, their strategy is first squeeze them out, and if you can't squeeze them out, throw them in jail. Um, I, are, are we, because I know you're, you, you've, you're living through this yourself, Vladimir, are we witnessing the revival of this kind of Brezhnev slash Andropov era style of kind of forced emigration? Is that, is that what you see happening right now? Brian, I wouldn't over-dramatize this thing, and definitely there shouldn't be a direct comparison with Brezhnev times, because we didn't have internet and social media in Brezhnev times. By the way, the first time when I learned about the this famous Red Square uh, demonstration of the eight in 1968 against mm-hmm. invasion of Slovakia. It was in late 80s. I had no idea. I lived through Soviet time. I had no idea this had ever happened. Uh-huh. So we had very little awareness of the very existence of the Soviet dissidents. We only learned in the late years of Perestroika, basically, about that. And Solzhenitsyn or Bukovsky, they had no opportunity to reach out to Russian people from Vermont or London, where, wherever they stayed. It's absolutely different right now. As a matter of fact, it doesn't make it doesn't make that much of a difference. Where where am I speaking from to the Russian people from the Navalny Life Studio on Avtozavodske in Moscow, <laughs> or right here from Vilnius? It doesn't like. And actually, when I left, after I left, 
like 99.9% feedback from our supporters was that it's very good because we still want to hear your voice. We, uh, and, and, and that's the difference with the 70s and 80s because I remember that myself. In 70s and 80s, we were getting information from uh, Radio Liberty, BBC, Voice of America, Deutsche Welle, but this was all spoken out by Western journalists. Now, we, yes, we're all abroad, but we're all genuine Russians who were just, I mean, we were well aware of the situation on the ground. We were right there just a few months ago. And we have a lot of supporters and we still continue to operate, to reach out to people, to send our message. This is a much more attractive uh, situation for ordinary Russians than, than it was in the 80s with the uh, foreign broadcasted voices because uh, they, they hear the voices of genuine Russian politicians. And we also, I mean, uh, uh, there's, there's been so much drama in discussion about this exile thing. Listen. I've been through a lot of stuff in the history in Russia in the past 40 years. I saw dictatorships collapse, uh, presidents, prime ministers, governments rise and fall. I saw tanks on 19th of August, 91. I saw tanks from my windows on Leninsky Prospect marching towards the center. At that moment, we thought that it's now, it, it's closed forever. They're gonna kill all of us. Three days later, it collapsed. So I, I don't think that I'm, I'm not looking at my current situation as an exile. I, I will definitely return to Russia. Uh, we need to make a lot of effort to make that happen. Depends on all. Now, I agree with you, Vladimir, from your perspective and from the perspective of Russian emigres. And I, 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 your, your point is very well taken. What I'm kind of puzzled by is why are the authorities doing this then? They're basically giving Vladimir Milov the opportunity to speak his mind to the Russian people pretty regularly in from a place where he is safer than if he were in Moscow. Why are the authorities doing this? Because there seems to be a very coordinated effort to push people like you and Lubov Sobol and you know all, all of the others out of the country right now. Um, and why are they doing that? I have to admit, I, I, I used to trick them a little bit uh, with the way of my immigration uh, because I didn't buy air ticket and there was a, um, I mean, really, there was a very hijacked secret operation. I left by land warning nobody and uh, uh, so on. I, they probably, I had a string of lawsuits from Prigozhin effectively blocking my exit from the country. So probably if I just bought a ticket by Aeroflot, I probably would not have been allowed to, mm -hmm. to leave the country. So I tricked them a little bit. Also, after this January protest, I used to tone myself down for a couple of months, uh, maybe giving them a hint that I'm sort of scared or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, after I found myself in a safe place, I continued uh, to speak up with renewed energy. So, listen, if, if I was doing what I'm doing right now, probably they will not let me out. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they hope that I will get scared, sort of hide somewhere and so on. Uh, but... Uh, but uh, uh, there was a bit of trickery on my part, and I think they. Uh, what I what I hear, some feedback I hear, is that they miscalculated and they regret that mm. they let so easily. Just right if, before we spoke a couple of hours ago, uh, uh, some people basically were visiting my apartment and they met a policeman at my doorstep today. Mm. We actually came and was asking questions like, "Where is Milov, and how can we talk to him, and so on." Uh -huh. so, 
You know, there's so there's you, still a lot of yeah there's still a lot of attention you know yeah no I can imagine um, but you don't seem to think there is a coordinated effort by the Russian authorities to push people like yourself out you don't you you don't because th- this is from what I've been seeing from comments from Gudkov and comments from Lubov Sobol that that they seem to be of the impression that the authorities wanted them to leave. Uh, partially yes because uh, th- there is a perception that once people leave Russia they become irrelevant. I think it's a very unpleasant surprise and uh, some sort of learning experience for folks like Patrushev and Bortnikov and others who are doing this. It's an unpleasant learning that, no, we, we still are relevant, and there was a big mistake to just let us right. go. So uh, it's, it's, no longer, it's no longer 1975. Maria, I want to bring you in here. What are, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you, do you agree with Vladimir? Do you, do you see a coordinated effort by the authorities to push uh, – opposition figures and civil society activists out of the country or not? Oh, certainly. Uh, I think the hint, the, the, the message is very, very direct. And if I'm not mistaken, in some instances, some of the political um, leaders, the opposition political leaders were sort of uh, given hints. Like, for example, they were uh, given passports, uh, which would be usually taken away by the authorities, given the charges that they experienced, something along those lines. Uh, and it's also true where I agree uh, that um, it's in some ways it makes it easier for uh, well I'll talk I know, know the examples of uh, the media is uh, a little bit more but uh, some things like getting funding for example might be much easier for some of the organizations that operate outside of Russia yeah. precisely because of this prohibitive legislation that uh, domestically really bans you cuts you off effectively of pretty much any places besides the Kremlin itself when you uh, can uh, get money for yourself. So in some ways it will make it make it easier, but of course it's also hard, especially from the media perspective. Uh, some of the journalists will st- still have to stay in the country uh, to get the information for you, right? And this is uh, the risks for them. Therefore, might be uh, hard, precisely for the same reasons. Uh, what? How is the Kremlin uh, thinking about this? Like how? Uh, what are the factors that uh, it uh, considers when it pushes uh, all these uh, opposition forces or independent forces outside of the country? I think there's a triple effect. Uh, first of all, um, immigration and open borders is one of the things that actually is, uh, sustains the sustainability of these regimes. Instead of uh, accumulating all of the protests inside of this, behind this iron curtain, right, as was, used to be the case in the Soviet Union, uh, now uh, getting rid, kicking them out of the country, and it is not a secret, right, it's harder to find job outside of the country, or maybe some people will integrate into these other societies, their new homelands, and therefore they will have to essentially operate by different rules, uh, Russia's uh, situation will become less relevant for them. So some people will eventually perhaps uh, abandon the um, idea of changing Russia uh, from within. Uh, second of all, it is probably true that um, there will be some decrease in uh, popularity of some of the opposition leaders, uh, those of them who are outside. I think it's one of the reasons why Alexei Navalny actually chose uh, to stay uh, and really sacrifice his life, frankly, for, uh, for the Russian people. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, he felt it's like to establish himself, to maintain, to sustain himself as a leader of the opposition, he would have to be uh, staying in the country, even that if that uh, presumes such horrible sacrifice, which is, of course, extremely admirable. And third factor, I think we also all witnessed that, is uh, control over the Internet, right? The idea is that it will, the Crown will ban, uh, like, people, brilliant speakers like Vladimir, for example, to reach out uh, to the Russian population or will limit uh, his ability to reach out to the Russian population by controlling the Internet. And we see that uh, even national security doctrine of Russia 
really describes the yeah. internet specifically yes. and its quote unquote deleterious impact on this um, susceptible minds of the younger generations. Right. One of the national threats, just national threats. Although they seem afraid to go all the to go all Chinese on this, basically. They seem well, not I ready. Think it's, not ready. I think there's also a lot of technological issues associated to that. I think Leonid Volkov, uh, another member of Alexei Navalny's team, he has described that in the past. The Russian authorities were sort of late in this internet control game. But they're catching up. I mean, there's uh, whether they're going to be succeeding that one option or not is a big question. But what we know from the past experience is, uh, for example, a ban on certain website, Granivo or places like that, which used to ban, were banned in the past and therefore we have some history. It decreases the uh, popularity of the website, the number of views uh, by tenfold, at least. Oh. So it does certainly achieve the result. Uh, and not everybody's going to install VPN, unfortunately, in Russia. People are lazy. They sort of, right. they prefer easier channels. So to some extent, there's no doubt that this effort will be successful. Will it be successful to fight history? which at this point, I would argue, is against Putin, like with the younger generations, overwhelmingly embracing the ideas that Vladimir represents here, rather than the ones that are represented by Putin, I think is a big question. But it's also true that the information environment is new. The realities are very different from what we experienced during the Soviet times. So it's a situation in uh, development. Well, before we, and that's a, that's a great way, great segue, Maria, before we switched into the second half, where we're going to talk more about the elections uh, in particular, I wanted to ask you both kind of, kind of a very broad question, just very briefly, is this crackdown sustainable? What we're seeing now, how sustainable is it? Because historically, at least in my, the, the, I've been paying attention to Putin's Russia from the very beginning, um, it's historically relied, in my opinion, on passive acquiescence, not on repression. And now the, the whole passive acquiescence card is no longer really available to them. All they got right now is repression. And how sustainable is that? Um, I don't know who, who wants to jump in first with thoughts on that. But go ahead, Vladimir. Uh, maybe I'll say a few words. Uh, it, it's definitely not sustainable in the longer term. Uh, however, most of the stuff that Putin and his colleagues do is uh, focused at short-term, achieving short-term goals. And right now, they, they have this uh, big target of securing absolute dominance after the Duma elections. So they want to scare off everybody with all available means so that no one, no one protests, no one uh, arranges a positive alternative and so on. Uh, longer term consequences are simply ignored because uh, I, what I see is that very obvious. I think this can be seen even from far abroad that uh, this new repressive mode that was switched on uh, is uh, becoming very unpleasant for the people who were absolutely non-political or even supportive mm -hmm. of Putin. They don't like it. They don't like this atmosphere of fear. Uh, one, one thing, when, uh, for instance, when Moscow is turned into a, a street fighting besieged fortress during uh, opposition rallies, this is not okay. One of the things that Putin's regime and Mayor Sabanian has been promoting is that uh, Moscow is became as this beautiful, modernized European city, and all of a sudden, on weekend days, uh, when opposition stages rallies, it, it is uh, filled with riot police who is beating randomly everybody. Streets are blocked. You can't go anywhere. You can't even check out of your hotel and go to the airport because it's all blocked, right? 
So that's it's not it's a lot of unpleasant uh, second secondary consequences and collateral damage. But uh, on the other side, I have to admit that many people really got scared after mm-hmm. tens of thousands have been visited by police knocking on the door saying you have been recorded as part of Navalny's network. You will have consequences. They received the threatening emails. Uh, some of the people scrapped donations because they fear that they might be tied to extremist network and persecuted and so on. Yeah, this this fear mongering works to some extent. Fortunately, only to a limited extent. But I think Putin believes that it's sufficient to fulfill his tactical goal of the very moment. In the short term, Maria, your thoughts on this? I agree on Vladimir. On fear, especially there were even surveys run by uh, several independent companies. I think, of course, uh, Levada Center was one of them. It has shown actually the fear of uh, repressions and uh, essentially uh, all massive cr- everything that the state represents actually returning back and uh, skyrocketing in the uh, Russian public mood. So from that perspective, we certainly see uh, that's been impactful. Is it going to last and how sustainable is that? I think, first of all, this I think it can be subdivided into two questions. First of all, is it going to end with elections, right? As Is it uh, ultimately all about the election, getting the right result of the, the United Russia? In here, I have to agree with what Vladimir said. No, it's unlikely to stop because it's not the this 2021 elections is not the main reason why we observe uh, the uh, mass scale crackdown. The reasons are underlying reasons are different, and I think there will be some decrease in the scale of repressions. I think uh, temporarily, perhaps, uh, but the fundamental quality, the new stage in which the regime finds itself, I think, unfortunately, will continue. Uh, the second one sh- uh, question in the long term. Uh, what we know from the literature is that repressions, once they start, they tend to self-reinforce uh, because they create a lot of um, actors, interest groups, uh, you know, in some kind of dynamic that sort of makes them self-reinforcing. At the time, but the counter argument may go as, but the region lacks resources to really implement consistent repressive repressions on the massive scale. Just a reminder that back in 2019, when a lot of Moscovites have been arrested um, during the protests because the opposition independent candidates were not allowed uh, to run in those elections for the Moscow, uh, Moscow Duma. Uh, the authorities at some point have run out of free available space in, in jails. So they were just so they were arresting people, but they couldn't keep them in because there was just no longer space available. And even if they're kitchen up and there are other innovative techniques that autocracies can use, uh, Lukashenko, for example, used football stadiums, yep. for the, soccer stadiums for the same purpose. Uh, there's just so much that they can do. And ultimately, I don't think they want to lose the face entirely. Uh, they, we're not at the final stage of Lukashenko yet, although we're definitely on the way there. Uh, but in the long term, I think fundamentally the legitimacy of the regime can no longer be sustained by the improving well-being of the Russians. I think that's the key challenge. Mm-hmm. And when the uh, regime runs out of the possibility to buy off legitimacy, unfortunately, uh, the other option that's left uh, for the regime is repression. repression. So in one way or another, I think, unfortunately, this new quality will continue. 
until, of course, the Russian society awakens uh, to the challenges and finally decides to, in the massive scale, decides to do something about it. And that's something we're all waiting for eagerly. And that's a good segue to go into our discussion of the elections. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at those so-called elections that are scheduled for next weekend and what they may pretend. I would like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me just from just down the street, DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood, is my old friend and colleague, Maria Smegavaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University. And joining us from Vilnius, Lithuania, one of my favorite cities in the world, which I miss dearly, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarnost, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's deputy energy minister back in 2002. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Looking ahead to next weekend's elections to the state Duma, I wanted to throw out just a couple of data points. Some of them have already come up in our discussion, but I think they merit repeating. The first is that the ruling United Russia party is extremely unpopular. The latest polls show them with just 27% of support in the country as a whole and just 15% in Moscow. If this were a normal election in a normal democratic country, they would be toast. Um, but this, of course, is not a normal election in a democratic country. The fix is, of course, in and the crackdown is widespread. But that said, Russian elections are largely political theater and legitimization rituals, and the Kremlin still needs to put on a good show to create the illusion that they have a mandate. Um, Maria, you pay a lot of attention to this. Um, how do you see this election playing out in terms of not just the results, um, which we expect to be fixed, but in terms of the theater and the ritual? Because that's the way I that's what I look for when I'm watching a Russian election. How was it good theater um, or was it bad theater? Um, and good theater for whom and bad theater for whom. So how do you see this? Uh, excellent question, Brian. Uh, yeah, the theater isn't great. I mean, unless, unless you're into some hardcore violent <laughs> um, Hollywood shows, then maybe you will uh, enjoy this. Uh, just uh, Alexander Kinev, one of Russia's most brilliant, I think, uh, elect and the best electoral analysts, uh, has just published a report uh, with the Liberal Mission Foundation where he essentially outlines uh, the developments and most likely forecasts for the upcoming election. Uh, so, first of all, uh, uh, the funny thing, right, uh, about the candidates who are registered, so something we already know as of now. Uh, it's almost impossible to register if you're an independent candidate trying to collect signatures. Um, so, 
even back in 2016, fairly liberal times, looking uh, from <laughs> back from 2021, uh, we had 23 <laughs> candidate people, individuals registered in 20 out of 2025 uh, districts as uh, based on the signature collection, not on the party lists. Uh, so try, uh, I mean, the random guess, how many do we have today, as opposed to 23? I don't know. Single digits. Uh, Eleven. All right, it's double twice. It's, it's a degree. It's still double, but a decrease almost twice, even as compared to 2016. It's almost impossible just to show you how bad the situation is. And mm -hmm. that's not to mention even all the candidates who got scared off, uh, had the trial opened against them, were banned from running from participating in the election, for example, because they uh, backed Alexei Navalny in the past. Right? Uh, there's an estimate that the number of these people who no longer have them a passive right to uh, participate in the election. Actually, at this point, is higher. I think it's nine million people higher than the one uh, which used to be in the Soviet times. Uh, that's how bad and prohibitive the situation is. Uh, as to the result, uh, because of uh, the combination of repressions, banning independent candidates from running, uh, creating spoilers, uh, you probably might have heard that in St. Petersburg, uh, Boris Vishnevsky, uh, our dear friend, and Yabloka yes, yes. facing two. Uh, individuals also named Boris Nishnevsky, who changed the name, surprise, uh, mm. right for in time for the election. And uh, also they're doing the their... Dornicky again? They're doing yes, the and they, oh, they do that. from the 90s, man. <laughs> and they also changed the looks. Uh, they now all have the same beard as uh, Boris Vishnevsky has, and the only thing that is different is patronymic, so <laughs> you can identify right. the right one only by uh, patronymic. The question is... Uh, that's, they did that in the, the 98 Legislative Assembly elections in St. Petersburg, I remember that, that tactic. Um, but go that ahead. goes back to the question whether the tools used by the autocracy are new. No, I think they have the same uh, set of tools at their disposal. It's the intensity of the use and maybe some variation in use of those tools that changes. Uh, what is new this time is the scale, of course. Uh, so if you want to laugh a little bit, take a look at the uh, list of uh, uh, Boris Vishnevsky uh, um, looking uh, Dvojniki twins. Uh, in the meantime, uh, because of this combination uh, of these uh, uh, trans repressions and, of course, falsifications, which will undoubtedly take place in the so-called electoral sultanates, so the, the areas where historically the election uh, are not uh, monitored at all, like Russia's Caucasus uh, uh, regions. Uh, that, of course, is, go is likely to lead to um, significant uh, in significant vote for uh, the United Russia. Specifically, uh, Kynif, Alexander Kynif believes there will be absolute majority, up to 180 district. Uh, districts uh, for the United uh, Russia out of 2025. Uh, 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 where are the um, the puzzle is like what 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 are then what what are we discussing essentially? Well, the discussion uh, discussion is really about whether uh, the um, majority that United Russia receives is going to be dominating. Uh, the other uh, interesting case of thing to watch is how much it's going to get in the big uh, capitals, in the big uh, urbanized areas like Moscow, where, as we have said before, uh, the United Russia currently rates as about 15%, which is extremely low even for the United Russia. And of course, uh, if there will be some independent candidates or candidates that the Kremlin will not be able to co-opt, who will after all manage uh, to get into the uh, parliament, even if it's very few, even if it's just uh, a couple of them, it still will be significant. Think uh, 2014 or 2012. 
when presence in the uh, Russia's parliament of at least somewhat uncoopted forces uh, actually allowed them, first of all, to somewhat side uh, with the protesters uh, in 2011. And uh, in 2014, at least two people uh, did not back uh, the annexation of Crimea, mm -hmm. uh, Dmitry Kutkov at the time, Lepanomarev, which was uh, even uh, by Russian standards, even one person it actually stands out and it means a lot. It prevents the Kremlin from like projecting this image of uh, complete monopoly and domination, right? It will show that even under such circumstances, there's people who stand out and who resist. And this is why I just wanted to emphasize how important the smart voting campaign that promoted by uh, Alexei Navalny, Vladimir and his team is, uh, because the idea is precisely to vote for uh, the the strongest competitor to the pro-Kremlin candidate, to the Kremlin candidate, uh, not necessarily, that guy's not necessarily going to be your ideal liberal Democrat who's going to embrace... Oh, it's, embrace it's usually going to be a communist or an LDPR candidate. So. With some, usually perhaps some really outrageous views, but those are the only people who are allowed to run. And nonetheless, uh, their ability, their presence in the parliament is very important because they create an independent pole of power that disrupts the, the uh, plans of the Kremlin and, first of all, forces the Kremlin uh, to negotiate to somehow maybe co-opt uh, them and at the same time creates an alternative pool. This is what the Kremlin absolutely hates. The Kremlin likes the power vertical, right? The podcast name. It doesn't like the presence of even I'm so one proud of stealing that name from Putin. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure Putin is very grateful. Uh, and uh, uh, that is precisely where the puzzle is. Will the position be able to mobilize enough to at least get a couple of independent candidates into the parliament? Yeah, no, I, I wanted to bring Vladimir into the discussion here, but expand on what I mean when I say political theater and ritual. And the way I think about this is comparing uh, the 2007 elections, in which from the Kremlin's point of view, that was awesome theater. That was awesome ritual, right? Thing went off without a hitch. United Russia won a huge majority. They didn't have to resort to obvious ballot stuffing. And so the ritual was a success. Um, 2011, totally different situation. Totally different situation, right? They had to resort to obvious ballot stuffing. They got their butts kicked. And largely thanks to Navalny's you know, institution of bringing in this idea of smart voting. Vote for anybody but United Russia, he said. Vote for the communists. Vote for Zhirinovsky. It doesn't matter. Just let's embarrass these clowns. Right. And that worked. And that was bad theater. And we know what happened after that. The Bolotnaya protests. Vladimir, you have long been a proponent of smart voting, um, as has Navalny. Can this strategy work in this environment? And is the goal just to embarrass the authorities or is there a broader, longer term strategical aff affiliated with, with smart voting? Uh, Brian, it not only can work, but it did work already. It was introduced uh, three years ago uh, after uh, Navalny did not invent the smart smart voting tactics. Uh, he only replicated it from something that has been done by the people. You know, uh, we had um, in 2018, we had four governor races in the regions where uh, the population's been uh, capable of actually forcing a runoff against the incumbents, mm. which they all lost, except Vladivostok, where uh, authorities still try to make it look like the incumbent won after all. They had a rerun and so on. But to make the long story short, they lost. They just dressed it up as a win uh, at the end. So uh, Navalny had this idea, which he was uh, actually repeating with some of his recent posts written from the jailhouse, uh, he's saying, look, uh, usually United Russia in most districts, they win with like 30, 40% of the votes. Uh, the reason why they win is because the other votes are split. Let's consolidate them. 
and it worked in many cases already two years ago in Moscow, many times in the regions and so on. Uh, now, I, I think the, the key issue at the moment is that uh, there is a great uncertainty. If, if we are to talk about what's going to happen next weekend, there's an extremely great uncertainty, the biggest uncertainty since the introduction of uh, relatively free elections in our country in late 80s, early 90s by Gorbachev. Uh, the uncertainty is driven by two factors. First, we really have this flood of anger and frustration with what the authorities are doing. 13 years without positive economic growth. Eight consecutive years of stagnation or decline of real personal incomes. Now, I mean, even in deeply authoritarian countries, governments get wiped off just because of those things, you know. Uh, people can stand a lot of things, but but not this lack of economic prospect and not the lasting decline in uh, living standards. Uh, you said that United Russia is uh, faring at 27%. Just to give you an idea, five years ago, we had elections of State Duma roughly at the same time. Mm -hmm. At this day, they had like 41, 42%, mm -hmm. 41, 42. They managed to get 54 but there's no wizardry that they possess to make 50 out of 27. Uh, so, so they are in trouble. You can see a lot of press reports and speculations that they will be ready to accept 45, 45% in proportional. Now, that is an important point because in Russia, we've been talking a lot about these parties, you know, KPRF, LDPR, and the others. But, I mean, let's go straight uh, to uh, point number one. Elections in Russia are most, mostly a plebiscite, referendum-type event. It's either you trust the authorities or you don't. All, all these other parties, candidates, is just window dressing, as we've uh, said it before. So it's 50% it, it's or less. This is what matters. That's the essence of the smart mm. voting. Many people spend a lot of time discussing how good or bad these KPRF and LDPR guys are. Now, listen, in, in, in 1989 or 1990, when the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was defeated, we never ever had the slightest idea that these guys running against incumbent communists can be worthy of anything. We just did it. We voted for them as a matter of last resort, you know. So that is... In, in this regard, it's far more similar to the Soviet times than the dissident stuff that we've been uh, discussing before. That really matters right now. Uh, the strategic strategic sense behind smart voting is that uh, Putin has been building a system over decades where voters' opinion did not matter. Mm -hmm. Who became a member of parliament was decided in high corridors of power, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're introducing a totally new element. We're saying, guys, you don't matter here. Uh, popular opinion matters. Whom you decided on a sheet of paper in the Putin's or Kirienko's office in the Kremlin, who's gonna be who's gonna be taken which seat doesn't matter. People's voices count. That's that. That's a strategic forward-oriented. I mean, that's a very optimistic and very laudable sentiment to have, Vladimir. I, I certainly share it, but there's uh, the, the context we're operating in here, and I, I can't help but remember the famous quote attributed to Stalin. Um, it's not important how they vote. It's important how we count, right? Um, I don't know if Stalin ever really said that, but it's a quote that's widely attributed to them. 
even if you're successful, what's to stop them from just, as you put it so elegantly before, dressing up a defeat in the clothing of victory? Um, what's, to, what's to stop them from just saying, we won 60% and that's it, or we won even if it's 55%, if you're saying the goal is to get over 50%, what's to stop them from just doing that and, and, and basically getting what they want out of this? Uh, listen, the first thing to understand is that Russia is not Belarus. Putin is not Lukashenko. We are a far more complex country. We have almost like almost 90 regions with different political cultures, different histories, and so on. Uh, we have been saying all along, I mean, uh, our viewers at Navalny Live have all got all this stuff explained very well, but we show them figures that uh, there is about 30 to 40 regions in Russia which do not have the tradition of falsifying the results. This is why they lost governor elections or regional legislative elections in the past years, because uh, Siberia, Far East, Urals, Russian North, Arkhangelsk, Mormons, Karelia, even five years ago in 2016, and, and that's, I mean, you can check it out on the Central Election Commission website. In 2016, on the peak of Crimea hysteria and this patriotic mobilization, there's been well over 20 regions which gave United Russia far less than 40% of the vote officially, given all the falsifications, less than 40% of the vote uh, in a proportional system, right? That was five years ago. It, they are far worse right now. Mm. So and this is all again, Siberia, Far East, uh, Russian North, uh, and, and Urals and so on. So there's an opportunity. I mean, of course, there are tools which we, uh, and they are enhancing these tools, how they can falsify the elections. Mm. But unlike Lukashenko, Lukashenko never allowed, uh, during his quarter of a century in power, he never allowed independent uh, observers, members of local polling election commissions uh, to be present. Uh, they only announced, you, you probably saw these pictures where people are looking with a, you know, uh, with the, with the uh, looking glass mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. uh, through the windows to see how they count the votes. No, in Russia it's different. In Russia, in uh, at least well uh, half of the polling uh, commissions, we have 96,000 polling commissions, about half of them at least will have independent representation and participation in vote count. So the fraud will be exposed. Like in 2018, uh, if the fraud happens, it will spark anger anger will result in a lot of other things. Mm. So it's not Belarus. It's more complicated to falsify. So Putin just cannot do it in a, you know, a flick of the switch. And even in Belarus, we saw what, what, what happened in the aftermath. We're bumping up against the end. So I want to ask you both a very broad question before we close it out for the week. And this is um, some elections in Russia are inflection points. Uh, the 2011 election was an election. The Duma election in 2011 was an inflection point. Um, how, do you think that this election will be an inflection point, and if so, why, and if not, why not? Oh, it, it will be, definitely. Listen, I think um, we all, often talk about Russian political events or elections is just like, you know, the one last battle. It is never the one last battle. It's a part of a, a Russian society has big inertia. You don't uh, lightly get rid of authoritarian regimes like that, the deep-rooted authoritarian regimes, which are also based on many things, uh, psychology, manipulation, propaganda, fear, repression, uh, buying off people and large financial reserves and so on. So it, it, it's a complete, to, to get down a mammoth like that, 
that is an effort. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not a one-one-off thing, you know. So we shouldn't treat this election as a, you know, the last the battle. Of no, no, I'm saying an inflection point oh. that's going to change the trajectory. It's not going to. It's uh, not the last battle. Course. It will. It will. Uh, let me say it. Uh, I mean, we, we are we, we are a week away from seeing the results. Let me uh, for the forecast. We will see stuff happening during these elections, which will demonstrate with all the proof, with, with signed and sealed by Pamphilov at the Central Election Commission, that no, Putin does not enjoy this supremacy and complete support as he wanted to make it look anymore. There will be defeats in the regions. There will be independent members of the state Duma. United Russia will hopefully have uh, less than 50% in a proportional vote. So although they they might still continue to maintain control uh, after these elections, they will suffer humiliating blows, which will put in question overall Putin's domination from now on and obviously beyond 2024. This is our goal. I think we can uh, we are we are capable of fulfilling it. Well, that's an optimistic prediction. We'll know in a week. You're saying this election is going to look more like 2011 than 2007. Maria, last word to you. Do you concur with Vladimir? I'd say that inflection point happened before this election. I think it already took place. Uh -huh. And uh, unfortunately, it has a lot to do with all the negative things that we have discussed uh, today, including the repressions. But those also were a response to the changes that are ongoing in the society, right? That they're unraveling and represent an increasing challenge to the regime and therefore force the regime to act preemptively to avoid a repetition of something similar to Belarus. Also, very commonly, we don't receive credit where the credit is due with the opposition, specifically 2019 election in Moscow, for example. Nobody really um, paid a lot of it, like there were protests, but it wasn't really on anybody's uh, high, uh, uh, top in the list. And yet, the opposition almost uh, was able, the yeah. independent candidates were able to almost take half the parliament. Yeah. A little bit more, and we, have, we would have- These were the Moscow city elections in political system. Mm -hmm. yeah. The political system might have changed if we had that. So therefore, uh, the, an element of uncertainty is always uh, present. And even tiny little gain, even tiny little victory, such as, as I said, passing a couple of independent candidates or the United Russia receiving very low, embarrassingly low results, say somewhere in the regions uh, or in Moscow, all of that uh, will count because you have to keep in mind the extremely hostile environment against which these uh, developments are unraveling. Uh, but that's an ongoing process. It's a fight. Unfortunately, so far, it's been, it looks like the Kremlin uh, has an upper hand. But as I said, uh, you have to be you have to wait for long-term developments if you are a Russia watcher. You can't just focus on the short term. Yes, no, that 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 is true, and I, I I like this note of optimism. You're both in, you're both kind of injecting here at the end of the podcast. Maybe maybe I have to adjust a little bit of my cynicism. How's that for a, a change of roles? The Russians are optimistic, and the American is cynical and pessimistic. How times have changed. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from just down the street in DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, and a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington 
University. And joining us from the awesome capital city of Lithuania, Vilnius, one of my favorite cities in the world, has been leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister back in 2002. Thank you both for an enlightening and informative discussion. Thank you, Brian. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please, please, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast. Read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.